Well, all right, everybody, you can go ahead and grab a seat. Some of you are one step ahead of me. Um, we'll get going with the final message in our Ask Anything series. Um, if you're just joining us, for five weeks now, we have opened our Bibles uh, to really hear from God on some of the biggest questions of life and faith. And today, for the final week, we're going to ask the question, what about when your question isn't directly mentioned in the Bible? Um, for example, we got some questions about marijuana. And while every pothead I've ever met seems to know that the Bible says that God made all the green plants of the field, uh, that says nothing about if you should roll it up and smoke it. Um, additionally, we got some questions about masks, like when the government mandates it, should we wear it? Shouldn't we wear it? Um, and we got some questions about yoga. Should a Christian engage in that practice or not? And uh, yeah, these are all topics that Christians have very strong opinions about, but none of them are mentioned directly in Scripture. And, and see, nothing about that should surprise us. Uh, I mean, do you know how long this book would have to be if God was going to address every little issue we might potentially face in our lives? Instead, what God has done is he has told us the most important things in his word, and then he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, his very own presence to help us apply this foundational level of truth to all of the various challenges and opportunities of life. And, and part of that foundational truth is actually a framework that God has given us for um, what do you do about things not mentioned in the Bible. That's what we're going to be looking at, a part of the Bible that addresses that today. And so um, my hope, my belief is as we look at what God the Holy Spirit has written for us here, um, that God the Holy Spirit will meet us as we sit in the text that he wrote, as we sit in the framework he's given us. My great expectation is as we press in on whatever topic is of interest to you, um, that this framework might be a helpful way um, that we can pursue the Holy Spirit's leadership in our life for all of these things and well beyond this. Are you ready? All right. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be. And um, while you're turning there, I'll set it up for you. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a disciple of Jesus named Paul to a group of Christians living in Corinth. And uh, they ask him uh, several questions that he's responding to in this letter. And one of the questions is, um, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And, and that might sound like a, an odd question to us as modern people, but what you have to realize is in the ancient world, um, every culture um, sacrificed animals as part of their worship. That's not just the book of Leviticus with the Jewish people. That's kind of all cultures around the world were doing this. The question wasn't, were you killing animals? It's what God are you killing the animals to? And again, you might look at that and say, oh, that's so weird. I think ancient people would look at the way that we get so emotionally worked up over grown men throwing a ball and say, that's weird. So I don't think we should be too judgy about it. Just recognize the historical context that they would sacrifice animals as part of their worship. And some Warriors fans really... Uh, uh, took that one to heart there. Um, this was their form of worship. And, and what would happen is after you sacrifice the animal, they're not just going to throw that meat away. That's good meat. And so what often happened is after an animal was sacrificed, is that meat would end up in the meat market. And so um, the question that these Christians in Corinth were asking is, um, 
man, they're living in a very pagan city. And so as the gospel begins to spread past the realm of the Jewish people out into the pagan world, they start to ask these questions. Well, uh, should we as Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Can we eat or can we eat? Should we eat or not? They say, we've searched the Bible and we can't find anything about this in here. We see a lot about killing animals and sacrificing it to the Lord, the God of the Bible, but what about meat that's been sacrificed to idols, to false gods? Should we eat or not eat? And what's really fascinating to me is Paul doesn't give them a straight answer. Uh, this discussion picks up in chapter 8, and in chapter 8, um, Paul seems to say, uh, yeah, sure, go ahead and eat the meat. In chapter 9, he seems to say, hey, maybe you want to hold off on eating that meat. And this isn't because Paul is wishy-washy on these things. This is because, here's our first principle today. We shouldn't be dogmatic about things not mentioned in the Bible. Um, Listen to how Paul will say it in another one of his letters. Um, This is a letter he wrote to a church living in the city of Rome that had the same issue going on. It was a pagan city. The gospel was starting to transform the city. And so the Christians were like, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And in Romans 14, he writes this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Take note, vegetarians. Just kidding. Uh, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." What Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, and he says it explicitly in Romans, is there are plenty of things to be dogmatic about in the Christian life. Truth that is worth contending for and fighting for and making sure that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have unity around these things. But things not mentioned in the Bible, that's not among the list of things that are worth uh, being dogmatic over. It, it, that doesn't mean that these things aren't important. In fact, if you keep reading Romans 14, what Paul will say is, you should each be convinced in your own minds. So he says, you should have strong opinions about this stuff, but you shouldn't take your opinion about this stuff and hold it as binding over another believer. Because everyone's journey is unique. Everyone in this room, everyone you've ever met is in a unique spot in their journey with God. God is at work in their life in a unique and dynamic way. They have dynamics you just don't even know about. Every person's journey is unique. And based on where they are and their walk with God and what God is doing with them, God might lead some to conclude eating meat is an act of worship. He might lead others to conclude this would be a bad idea. Everyone's journey is unique, and so our job is not to judge the conclusion of other Christians on things not mentioned in the Bible. Our job is to seek God's will for our life and live faithfully into that. In chapter 8, Paul talks about the kind of person that would uh, worship while eating the meat. In chapter 9, he talks about the kind of person that wouldn't want to eat meat. Again, our job isn't to judge the conclusion of others. We don't want to be dogmatic about things not mentioned in the Bible. We simply want to seek God for his will for our life on these things. Now, how do we do that? That brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
So in chapter 8, he's given us one scenario. In chapter 9, he's given us another scenario. In chapter 10, he brings the whole uh, discussion to a conclusion with an amazing section of scripture that we'll sit in this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Here's the second principle we're going to look at, and this is where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. Paul says, on things not mentioned in Scripture, our aim needs to be glory, not just getting by. Aim for glory, not just getting by. Look at verse 23. He says, all things are lawful. Uh, You might have noticed that that's actually in quotation marks in your Bible. Um, This was a saying that some in the church in Corinth were saying about the whole issue of food sacrifice to idols. They were saying, all things are lawful, meaning, hey, we're free in Christ. You've told us the gospel, Paul. That means that the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to bring us life. And so because of the gospel, we know that there's nothing we can do that would ever separate us from the love of God. There's nothing we can eat that would make him change his mind about us. All things are lawful. And that's absolutely true. They get the gospel right. All things are lawful. But look at Paul's response. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. In other words, just because you can, it doesn't mean that you should. Let let me give you a more modern example, um, because I think we all know this. Um, Can you eat Tide Pods? Yes. If you think the answer is no, go Google the Tide Pod Challenge. It's a thing people have. Can you eat Tide Pods? Yes. Um, Should you eat Tide Pods? No. Why? Because it's just dumb. Like, you don't need an answer beyond that. Like, that's not what it's for. And like, is it sin to do it? Would it change God's mind about you? Like, no, the gospel's bigger than our foolishness. But like, no, it's just dumb. You you don't want to be that person that when you Google Tide Pod Challenge, you see it. I apologize to you if you've participated in the challenge. Um, What Paul says is, if you live your life based around the framework of can I do it, then your life is going to look like the folks eating the laundry detergent. Um, Your life will be filled with things that aren't necessarily sinful, certainly can't separate you from the love of God. It's just dumb. And it will cause you to miss out on the life of glory 
that God has for you. Don't miss verse 31. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in life, do it all to the glory of God. That's the goal right there. Not, can I do this? Uh, What Paul's saying is that's such a thin way to view your life of, can I technically do this? Am I technically allowed to do this? What he says is, that's not the goal of the Christian life. The Christian life is a call to a higher plane of existence where we get beyond what we technically are allowed to do and can step into the life of glory that God has called us to. And so the question for a Christian should not be, can I do this, but will this actively line me up with God and his glorious purposes for my life? Aim for glory, not just getting by. Paul says, if you do that, you will never have a dull moment in your life. Um, Even things as mundane as eating and drinking can be moments that are filled with glory. And if you're thinking like, man, what planet is Paul living on? That sounds like some fantasy novel where like everyday life is filled with moments of glory. What I would say is... um, That's the invitation here. But what happens, I think, is most of the time, rather than living for God and his glory, we simply just live to get by. Um, Where we don't seek God and his glory, and and maybe you do. I mean, you're here this morning. You're watching online. You you know, we're seeking God together on Sunday mornings. But what about Sunday evenings? What about Monday mornings? What about your commute home on Monday? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday? What about Thursday? I think what tends to happen in the Christian life is we have these limited spheres of life where we seek the glory of God, and then the rest of the life, we just live, what can I get away with? What can I technically do that won't get God mad at me? We we don't live for glory. We just live to get by. And we're not thriving. We're just getting by. And the invitation of this text is to dream bigger for your life. God certainly has. Dream bigger for your life because you you have been called to a life of glory. And so when it comes to things not mentioned in the Bible, our question isn't, can a Christian do this? It really should be, will this line me as a follower of Jesus up with God and the glorious plans he has for my life? That, that's the principle. Aim for glory, not just getting by. And then I love this. Um, Paul gives us three things to consider to help us figure out if something would be helpful or not, to figure out if something would line us up with God and his glorious purposes for our lives. And um, I want to make today's sermon as practical as possible. And so I've taken the three considerations from the text and I've put them in the form of questions for you. Questions that you can ask about any topic, marijuana, yoga, masks, whatever you're curious about, you could ask about any topic and seek God's will for your life. Uh, The wording of these questions, by the way, it's not magical. The wording doesn't come from the text. The, um, The concepts do. The considerations do. So if you don't like my wording, create your own. But here's the three considerations that God has given us in his word, that the Holy Spirit has said, if you want to seek my leadership in your life, here's where it starts. Aim for glory, not just getting by. Three ways to do that. Number one, ask, how will this affect my relationship with God? 
Um, Paul talks in these chapters a lot about how eating this meat would affect a person's relationship with God. Um, He says in chapter 8, I believe, he says there are some who are strong in their faith, meaning they understand that there's only one true God in heaven. Um, And so they're not really tempted by this idol worship stuff. And so uh, for them, those who are strong in their faith, have a good theology of who is God in the heavens, what Paul says is, you guys should go ahead and eat. That's good meat. And if you cook it right, say thank you to God when you bite in, it'll be an act of worship. So for some, he says, your relationship with God depends on you cooking that meat. Don't cook it too well or you won't taste the flavors God has for you. Have a great time. That's what he says for some. And let it be an act of worship. Give thanks as you eat it. And all of a sudden, your eating is filled with glory. But then he talks about another type of person. Someone who is weaker in faith. Um, These would be the Christians he talks about that have just come out of a lifestyle of worshiping these idols. Maybe the prior Sunday before the church gathered, they were in the temple worshiping the idols. And so what he says is for that brother or sister, man, eating that meat could tempt them and drag them back into their old way of living. Because it's not as clear in their heart who God is. God's at work in their life. He's redeeming them. He's your brother in Christ. But man, he... He's at a spot in his journey where there's just not as much clarity there. And so for him to eat the meat would just confuse his heart and it could tempt him and drag him back. And so for that person, he says, if that's you, man, no amount of tri-tip is more important than your relationship with God. And so it might be tasty meat, but Jesus is better. And so don't eat the meat. Prioritize your relationship with God. You don't want to do anything that would introduce confusion into your walk with the Lord. You want to passionately pursue whatever is going to line you up with the greater love for Jesus and everything he has done for you. And so Paul challenges each person to consider, how will this eating affect my relationship with God? Will this grow my love for Jesus or will it drag me away? Um, I want to give you a practical example of how this has played out in my life because I think the whole meat sacrifice to idols thing is pretty abstract for us today. Um, And so let me just give you one example of how this has played out in my life. Uh, Several years ago, I gave up my PlayStation. Um, Now, this is not the time to look at your husband and say, do you see what pastor just said? Remember the first principle. Do not be dogmatic about that which is not mentioned in scripture. I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm just telling you about God's work in my life. And for me, um, I have the kind of personality, I don't know if you've noticed this, I tend to go all in on things. I don't really have a dimmer switch. So if I'm going to get into something, man, I get all into it. Um, And so, man, when the new Call of Duty would come out, it would be like, hey, I'll see you once we liberate Europe. I mean, I'm all in. Some of you have never played Call of Duty before. That's okay. Um, And and look, that worked fine for me in college when, um, you know, you could stay up until 5 a.m. and then get two hours of sleep and then wake up, chug a Red Bull, and pound your way through class. That worked fine for a while. But then when I became a Christian and started growing in my relationship with Jesus, one of the things that the Holy Spirit began to point out to me, um, 
And some of this took community with other believers. Uh, one of the things God began to point out to me was how much of my headspace this stuff was taken up. Um, and so, so, okay, so my first response is, I- I'm living to get by, not the life of glory. And so I'm like, okay, it's taking up too much headspace, so I'll just try to play video games less. But what I've learned about myself this took some time. What I've learned about myself is I just don't possess the capability to casually do the video game thing. I'm either all in and it's all my headspace, or I've got to take it out. And so in that sense, I am weaker. I can't have a console in my house and not end up staying up till 4 a.m. fighting the Nazis. I don't possess that ability. And so God's desire for me is not to all of a sudden become a strong believer. The goal is never to go from weak to strong in these issues. The goal is to be faithful to God where we're at in our journey. And so I'm like, okay, I don't have that ability. And so for me, I've just had to cut it out of my life. Now, again, hear me. I'm not anti-video games. Don't take this message and beat someone over the head with it. I think a lot of you can enjoy video games to the glory of God, but I cannot. For me, it becomes a false God that drags me away from my affections for Jesus. And so I've had to say no to video games in order to experience the life of glory that God has called me to. And that's just how God's led me. I'm not saying you should do that, but what I'm trying to do is just take this idea and lay it on the ground in as practical of a way as possible for you um, so that you can assess in your own life with each issue that comes up what that looks like. So, so, so that's my life. Uh, question number two. How will this affect the other Christians in my life? Look at verse 24. Paul says, hey, don't just seek your own good, but seek the good of your neighbor as well. And uh, in these chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, you see that Paul has two kinds of neighbors in view. The first kind of neighbor is um, your brother or sister in Christ. And this is a huge emphasis, probably the main emphasis in this section. It's probably the main thing Paul spends his time on. Um, Listen to how he says it back in chapter 8, talking about thinking about your brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to read from chapter 8, starting in verse 9. He says, But take care that this right of yours, he's talking to those that are free to eat this meat, He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who are having knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I will never eat meat. What? See, more important than Paul's own good is he has the good of his brothers and sisters in Christ in mind. And I I don't know if it's just because I really can't imagine a meal without meat, but that's a profound statement. What he's saying is, um, look, if, if your life is about more than just you and your walk with God. 
That's foundational. That's where it begins. But the Christian isn't, life isn't just you and Jesus. The Christian life is you and Jesus and Jesus' people. And see, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture that says you should make ethical decisions based on what is right for you, yourself, and I, and think about no one else in the equation. You do whatever seems good to you. And so the Christian version of that is we say, how is it for my walk with Jesus? And if it works for me, I don't care about anything else. That's the spirit of our age. It's just baptized in Christianity. What Paul says is that is the thin life. That is a real thin life to only care about your relationship with Jesus and not think about how your actions are affecting the Christians around you. The life of glory that God has called you to is a life where you live with the good of those around you in mind. Because you've been created for a relationship. And as you step into this life of glory and start to think about someone other than yourself, you will find yourself stepping into glory in the most mundane things of life. And look, there's got to be a limiting principle here. Um, You cannot worry about what every Christian on the planet might think about what you're doing at all times. Otherwise, you would do nothing. Because in my experience, there's going to be someone that will get offended about just about anything you do. I just offended someone by saying that. So you can't worry about every Christian on the planet and conceivably what might someone be offended by. I think what Paul has in mind when he talks about our neighbor is the people that we actually have regular contact with. The people that we actually live in community with. And so for you, that might not even mean everybody at Fair Oaks. Um, For you, that might just mean the people in your gospel community. And for you, maybe, maybe you're like, I don't even know about them. I don't see them outside of Wednesday nights. Maybe for you, it's an even smaller subset. I think if you ask the Holy Spirit, he'll reveal to you who your neighbor is. I think he'll reveal to you who are the people that God would call you to a higher plane of existence by thinking of their good in addition to your own. Um, let me give you another example from real life just to lay this one down on the ground. Um, I have a friend who was uh, an alcoholic for a lot of years. And, uh, man, God's grace is, is so at work in this man's life. Um, it's been amazing to see God free him and heal him and give him a new kind of life that's not enslaved to alcohol but lives for something more. Um, I'm just so encouraged as I've watched what God has done in this man's life. Um, I, and I have great respect for the seriousness with which he takes his sobriety. Because he, he knows at any moment he could slip right back into that. And the freedom and the life, it's gone. It's back to slavery. So I have great respect for this man and great awe at what God's doing in his life. You know who I have greater respect for? His wife. Who has never once struggled with alcohol. It's never been a thing in her own journey. But she has decided to join him in his journey. They won't have alcohol in their house. And that's not because he's asked her that. That's because she said, I don't want to have alcohol in the house. Um, and, and I really think that the way that she's joined him in this, stepped into this with him, has been part of how God's grace has been at work in this man's life. Um, because the way that she has said to her husband, your freedom is more important than my freedom. Let's do this together. It's a beautiful thing. 
that she's willing to give up something that might be beneficial and good for her. I could show you the Bible verse that says wine is good to gladden the hearts of humans. But she's given up a good thing for a greater thing, a beautiful thing. That's what I think Paul has in mind here. She's living for more than me, myself, and I. She's beginning to think about another Christian that she's in close proximity with, the closest proximity of any other human on the planet. And whether or not you're married, that is, I believe, what Paul's instructing us to here. This is the life of glory that God has called you to. It's not one that's focused inward on self, but it's one that's bent outward in love for others. And, and, and I'll tell you this, uh, next week we're going to be in our summer series in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter of the Bible. And so if you're like, man, that sounds glorious, come back next week, join us this summer. We're going to spend a whole summer seeking to grow and love in this glorious way of living. So, so there's the plug for that. But that's consideration number two. How will this affect the other Christians in my life? And then we get number three, because there's another type of neighbor. One type of neighbor is the believing neighbor, the brother or sister in Christ. But then number three, we need to think about how will this affect the non-Christians in my life? Uh, Listen again to how Paul says it in verse 32. He says, uh, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try not, or excuse me, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many. Why? So that they may be saved. In other words, what Paul is saying is an action might be totally fine for you in your walk with Jesus, it might be totally fine for you and your other Christian friends. But if that action, would negatively reflect upon a non-Christian's view of God, that would obstruct their path to salvation, that would um, punt on the opportunity to show them what God is like, well, then that action, it falls short of the glorious life that God has called you to. What he's saying is there are non-Christians who are watching. He says there are Jews, that at this point, that's not God's people anymore. Those are people that have rejected the Messiah that has come. So there's religious people that don't believe, and then there are Greeks. Those are very secular people that don't believe. There's a lot of kinds of ways to reject God. He says they're watching your life, and you have to think not only about the church of God, but about the uh, religious unbeliever in your life and the secular unbeliever in your life. You have to think about them because they are watching your life. And you are an image bearer of God. That means you're created to show the world what God is like. And so they're looking to you to see what your God is like. You've been saved to be a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so it's not wrong that non-Christians frame their assumptions about Jesus based on looking at Jesus' people. This is how God has designed it to work. And what Paul says is when you take that seriously, it can open some up to believe But if you punt on that, if you don't take that seriously, you're going to miss out on the glorious life that God has for you. You and I can either clarify the good news for the non-Christians around us, or we can obscure it through our behavior. 
And I think that's what he's pressing on here, that our actions, they're not personal and private. They have an impact on the world. And again, I promise you there's glory in it if you can see that. So the third consideration is we have to think, how will this affect the non-Christians in my life? What will this make them think about God? And if we could have some real talk this morning, I would just say this is the consideration out of all three that I think is most missing among a lot of Christians today. Um, This will probably get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it because I think this is relevant. Um, We had a lot of people over the last couple of years calling us to flaunt Um, government uh, mandates when it came to COVID. And uh, so just run back to our grid. Could we? Yes. I'm going to answer that one for you and not make this one awkward. Yes. We don't live in Canada. Religious liberty and the freedom of religious expression has always been a value in this country. So we wouldn't be breaking any laws to say, hey, our religious expression, uh, we're going to do our own thing over here. Could we? Yes. Should we? See, at what cost? Because I can't tell you the number of non-Christians I've talked to in this valley over the last couple of years. That when they find out that I'm a pastor, the number one question I will get is, why are Christians so anti-science? And it's because they're watching churches, not just um, flagrantly like break what's being asked of us by the healthcare professionals, but like literally um, bragging about it. And look, uh, before you send me that email, I'm not saying Christians are anti-science. I'm not saying these people are right in their accusations. What I'm saying is they believe that it was anti-science to not follow all of the guidance given by the CDC. Just like there were those in Corinth who believed that these idols represented real gods and real threats to Jesus' rulership in the universe. And do you notice Paul doesn't say, well, just because those idols aren't real, they're demons at best, they can't compete with Jesus, so go flaunt your freedoms. That's not what Paul says. What he says is, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I recognize the impact that my so-called freedoms have on the non-Christians around me. I'm going to live my life not to please myself, but in such a way that they might be saved. And look, I'm not saying this means you should be triple masked and double vaxxed and continue to getting vaccine to where you have more vaccine than water in your body. I'm not telling you where you should land on any of this stuff. What I'm saying is thinking through the grid of how will my actions and what I post online, how will that reflect my Jesus to the people that are watching my life? What is that going to say about my God to the watching world? And the arrogance with which some churches and Christians flippantly flaunted their disregard for the things being asked of us. Again, I'm not even saying they were wrong to land there, but the arrogance with which it was flaunted shows me that this is not often a part of our equation. We have got to think about our impact on non-Christians. And so for Paul, these are the three things that we need to consider if we're going to live into the life of glory that God has called us to. We need to think, how is this going to affect my relationship with Jesus? We need to think, how is this going to affect my relationship with other Christians? And then, yes, we do need to think, how is this going to affect the non-Christians in my life and what they think about Jesus? 
And at times, any one of those questions might lead us to say no to something that we'd otherwise be free to enjoy. But that's the life of God, glory that God has called us to. We're not to live just to get by and do whatever we're technically allowed to do. We are to step into a path of glory where even the most mundane moments are bursting with the glory of God and that we can participate in the life of God, even in our eating and drinking and mask wearing or not mask wearing, even in our yoga participating or not participating, and even with marijuana. That's the paradigm. To aim for glory, not just getting by. And these are the ways to do it. Now, what I want to do is um, practically walk through this with one example. Because like I said, we got asked about several things, but I think maybe, I I know the most common thing we got asked about was marijuana. And so um, let's just run through this grid on marijuana to see how this might play out. We'll see if I still have a job at the end of the sermon. Um, and, and let me say this, the questions we got, I don't think they were about medical marijuana. Um, I don't think there's a lot of Christians who would say that there's not a legitimate medicinal use for um, marijuana. The questions we got were a lot like this. Here was one question. Now that it's legal, can a Christian smoke pot? That's the question. And, and so, okay, let's just run it through our grid. Number one, we're talking recreational marijuana use. This isn't (laughs) prescribed by a doctor. This is, it's Friday night. What are we going to do tonight? Number one, let's consider it. How will this affect my relationship with God? Um, I've had friends tell me uh, that they feel closer to God when they're high. Um, And that's a fascinating statement. Um, I actually think there's good evidence in the Bible to support the idea that when you are under the influence of drugs, that you are more open to the spiritual realm. But it's not the side of the spiritual realm you want to be open to. And I'm not saying God can't overcome that darkness. I'm not saying that. Jesus has saved people in some very crazy ways. What I'm saying is, if you want to grow closer to Jesus, getting high ain't the way to do it. And you might say, that sounds very dogmatic, Pastor. Remember principle number one? Well, this is actually something the Bible addresses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What this this is saying is, man, being under the influence of a substance like wine is a cheap substitute for being under the influence of God the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to grow closer to Jesus, you pick it. Do you want to be under the influence of substances or the Holy Spirit? If you want to grow closer to Jesus, you've got to pick one. And so, um, can a Christian get high? I would say, can you? Yes, it's not going to change God's love for you. That's the flat truth. Um, Should you? Man, I I don't think it's going to grow your love for Jesus. I think it's going to create some distance there. Um, But then the question often turns to, okay, well, okay, I'm not talking about getting high and just being like out of my mind and being like, I see a pink elephant. Um, I'm talking about smoking in moderation. And and you'll hear this argument often, like, hey, Jesus drank wine and was always filled with the Holy Spirit, so apparently there's a way to engage with these substances and not being under the influence of them. So should a Christian smoke in moderation? 
First of all, I would say I don't know anyone that smokes pot in moderation, just off the bat. But let's take the hypothetical, because this is a new thing. Um, what I would say about that is ultimately you got to do your own research. Um, you know, with wine, most people can have three or four glasses before they are under the influence of alcohol, at least as it would be legally defined, like to drive a car. Um, the legal limit for being under the influence of marijuana is much, much, much lower. It's uh, seven milligrams of THC ingested. So that's the equivalent of four puffs, which I get a lot of humor out of thinking about. Someone sat around and did a study and said, okay, we got to measure seven. <laughs> okay, you're a quarter of the way there. Do it again. Like someone actually measured this. But that's four puffs and you're under the influence legally. That's a pretty different ball game than drinking wine in moderation. That's why I say I, I've never met the person that's like, okay, done, that's all I can have. But, but okay, let's just say for the sake of argument that that's there, um, fine. My, my only point here is to say that weed is not the same as wine. And to say that just because Jesus drank in moderation that we should smoke weed in moderation is frankly an unscientific statement because the chemistry and the biology is completely different. So before you light up to the glory of God, I would say just do your research. Um, I've given you some great resources in the discussion guide where you can see the data on that uh, being under the influence, being four puffs, and also a full book that you can dive more into because there's so much more to consider with marijuana than just when you're under the influence. But what I would say, I'm not going to answer this one for you. I would say you got to do your own research. If after doing your research and prayerfully pursuing God, you can say, I think this will help me grow closer to God, then by all means, have your four puffs. By all means. But that's only question one. Question number two. How will this affect the other Christians in my life? See, it might work great for you to have your puffs and to do it to the glory of God. And it's an act of worship. You're not under the influence of marijuana. You're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you thank him for the green plants he put on the planet. But what if there's a, a less mature Christian in your life? who doesn't have the ability to stop, and, and they see you enjoying, and wow, looks like they're having a great time, and so they start smoking marijuana. And, and for them, what if it becomes a gateway to other drugs, like is so often the case for people? What if it causes them to slip into something? I mean, seriously, we got to think about this. Is that worth it? Was that, was that worth it that it might destroy a less mature Christian in your life that you love and care about? Is your freedom worth that? And again, I'm not saying you have that person in your life. I'm saying you should consider your community. And maybe you need to ask your friends, like, do you have a past with drugs that I need to be aware about? Because I want to love you, but I also want to light up, and I want to make sure that I'm loving you well. you got to have that conversation. Some of you are like, I can't believe this is happening in church. Number three, uh, I told you I'm really not going to answer this one for you. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. Um, number three, how will this affect the non-Christians in my life? Now, I will just say, I doubt that it will cause the non-Christians in your life to stumble if you light up a joint. I don't know if any non-Christians are going to be like, this really breaks my framework of the world. I don't know what to do. Um, so I, I don't think that's going to be super problematic here. In fact, if anything... I was thinking about it this week. I was like, this consideration might actually lead me to take a puff and pass if I'm trying to witness to a bunch of potheads. 
Because I could say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including that plant. All things belong to God. I'm going to take a puff and remain under the influence of the Holy Spirit and give thanks to him and pass it to show them that God's not a killjoy. I'm not saying you should conclude that. I'm saying this is just what I've been thinking about this week. You need to think about the non-Christians in your life and what are you saying to them about what God is like. If at any point you're hearing me say, here's what you should do, you brought that into the equation this morning, not me. I'm intentionally giving you a framework and encouraging you to pursue this with the Holy Spirit. For me, I will tell you, I don't do the recreational marijuana thing. I've got plenty of things in my life that are more interesting. But you're going to have to seek God on this front for your own life. And that's just one example. Um, I think a great thing to do around the dinner table tonight, at gospel community this week, is ask your questions about whatever your issues are and run through these three considerations with some other people that love Jesus and love you. Like, are you the person that asked about yoga? That's a great question. Um, Are you the person that asked about Halloween? Like, that's another really great question. Um, I I wanted to get to all those, but I'm just at a point where I've got to land the plane right now. So um, try this out this week. Ask your questions in community. Walk through these three considerations. Aim for glory, not just getting by. And I believe that as you do that, what you will find is that the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you, just like he led and would guide Paul and the Corinthian Christians, and he has so often led and guided me and so many other Christians throughout history. This isn't unique to me. These are faithful things that Christians have been thinking about for a long time, in large part because of 1 Corinthians 10 here. And what I would just say is, as you discuss in this in community, please remember our first principle. Don't be dogmatic about things that are not in the Bible. Again, I'm not saying don't have strong opinions. I'm just saying don't judge the Christian maturity of someone else. Um, One of the things that I'm so tired of hearing of is you cannot be a Christian and vote for so-and-so. I'm like, there is no Hebrew word for Trump or Biden. So don't you dare bind the conscience of another believer. You should have strong opinions about that. Some of you, you're way too chill about this stuff. But you shouldn't hold them as binding over another person. So so try this stuff out in community. Remember the first principle. Don't be dogmatic about things not in the Bible. And at the same time, let me also say this. Don't be neurotic about things not mentioned in the Bible. By all means, we should seek God on this stuff and ask him to lead us. But at the end of the day, our confidence cannot be that we will get it right on all of this secondary stuff that's not mentioned in the Bible. Our confidence isn't that we'll always have the right idea on these things, that when we get to glory, God's like, man, you nailed every single thing that I would have had you do. Our hope is that there is a God in heaven who left his eternal home of glory and came to the earth and entered into our mess, where people so often live for getting by that we destroy the lives of other people around us. Just like Paul says was happening in the Corinthian church. He comes into our world where we're destroying one another, and he brings his life of glory into this world. And on the cross, we see the ultimate example of the glorious life where Jesus gave his life, not for his own benefit. It would have been his benefit to stay up in glory and enjoy the eternal love between the Father, Son, and Spirit that he has always enjoyed. But Jesus laid aside his good, stepped into our broken world, died in our place for our sins to rise again to give us a good we could never achieve on our own. 
And so we can live the glorious life, not because we're so committed to this and are going to nail it every time, but because this same Jesus is committed to leading us further and further into that glory from one degree of glory to another. One step at a time, one step at a time. And some of that will be through getting this right. Some of that will be when we stumble and fall, picking us up and saying, that hasn't changed my mind about you. Let's keep going. And so that's where I want to leave us with those words from Romans 14. The Lord is able to make you stand. He is able to make me stand. He is able to make us stand. And that's got to be our confidence as we end into this stuff. That if we trust in him, we might get something wrong. We might stumble along the way, but we could be sure of this. He will get us to our heavenly home of glory in the end where we can taste in fullness what we can only glimpse in pieces now. And that's why we praise him. And that's why we want to live with him. And that's why we want to experience more of him now. Amen? All right, let me pray for us and ask for his help as we do this. Jesus, thank you for leaving your home of glory. Stepping into this broken world to give us a hope for glory. Um, Thank you that you are for us. And we're not trying to twist your arm to ask for your help, but that your posture towards us is kind, that you delight in leading and guiding us. And so I just ask you to do what I know delights you to do, and that is would you send your Holy Spirit to speak to each and every one of us? Um, Whatever the issues we're wondering about, would you help us apply this framework you've given us to our life? Would you lead us and guide us? We don't just want to get by. We want to live for glory. And so would you lead us and empower us and teach us to walk in that life that you've purchased for us increasingly here and now. We love you. We ask all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.